The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go Beyond Reality. Good morning, good evening, welcome everyone. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm J.V. Johnson. Thanks for joining me tonight. And uh, we've got a really great show lined up because we're going back to our roots tonight. We're going to be talking about ghosts, ghost hunting, paranormal investigating, and particularly those things as they relate to Civil War sites. That's going to be pretty cool. Our guest tonight will be Rich Newman. He's an author and a paranormal investigator. He's got many books on the subject, including Ghost Hunting, um, I mean, Ghost Hunter's Field Guide, Ghost Hunting for Beginners, and Ghosts of the Civil War, among some other books as well. So that's going to be a great discussion, and we will take your phone calls uh, later in the program at 844-687-7669. That's the toll-free number if you want to join our conversation. A um, couple things to announce. Uh, we've got great shows coming up um, the rest of the week and into next week. Tomorrow night, Carissa Hartley, who is a psychic medium, will be joining us on the show to talk about her craft. And uh, we'll be taking your phone calls. I'm not sure yet if we're doing readings. I need to get uh, Slick Eddie on that. Uh, let me know what's going on with that. Uh, Friday night, as always, is a best of program, at least as always right now. That may change very, very soon. I'm excited about that. Monday, uh, Steve Ubaney will join us. And Tuesday, R.L., who's an author, and we'll be talking about his book, The Lead Skalman Codex. Now, that name, although it's very, very difficult to pronounce, may be familiar to some people. Uh, The subtitle of that book will explain it all. It's Breakthroughs in Understanding the Coral Castle. We've all talked about the Coral Castle on this program before. Um, It's a pretty interesting and mysterious story down in Florida. And we'll be talking with R.L., about that on Tuesday night of next week. And Paul Selig will be our guest Wednesday night. Those topics will be uh, explained in more detail as we get into next week. So um, one other thing I want to mention before we go to break and get ready to bring our guest in is that um, I've just committed to uh, some traveling and uh, let you know where I'm going to be out and about. Um, Horror Hound Weekend is in Cincinnati Uh, March 15th through the 17th, and I'll be there at that event. I'll also be at the New Jersey Horror Con on March 29th through the 31st in Atlantic City. That'll be interesting. And then uh, Seattle Crypticon on May 3rd through the 5th. I'll be heading out that way uh, to um, work with those folks. So some great stuff coming up. If you're anywhere near those areas, mark them on your calendar, those shows, because I would love to have you stop by and say hello. That's what it's all about, right? Um, yeah, let's see. I guess uh, what I'll do now, uh, why don't you uh, uh, get a, take a second and stop by my Facebook page. Um, give that a like. It's just J.V. Johnson on Facebook. Also, if you haven't checked out the YouTube page, I invite you to do that as well. It's J.V. Johnson on YouTube, and there's a lot of great videos there. These discussions get put there, um, plus there's some live streaming, a lot of cool stuff. I would love to have you... Um, Subscribe to that channel. We're in a mad dash for a thousand subscribers. Let's make this happen. Again, go to YouTube, just search for JV Johnson. You'll find uh, me there and subscribe to the channel. A lot of great stuff. It's all free, right? Okay, so let's take a break. When we come back, we will start uh, our discussion with Rich Newman. We're going, talking about ghosts and paranormal investigating. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Joha. That's J O H A W. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Tonight we're talking with Rich Newman. He's an author, a paranormal investigator. His website is paranormalincorporated.com. It's all spelled out, incorporated. And he's the author of several books on the topic. Ghost Hunter's Field Guide, Ghost Hunting for Beginners, Devil in the Delta, Haunted Bridges, and Ghosts of the Civil War. Rich, it's an honor to have you on the program. Welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. Hey, thanks for having me, man. So, you know, the first question I ask anybody who's gotten themselves wrapped up in this crazy business we call ghost hunting or paranormal investigating is uh, what attracted you? How'd you get your start into this? (laughs) Well, I mean, it's uh, pretty much... Guaranteed, it's probably the same way you did and everybody else. And, um, you know, I was a big fan of the show Sightings in the 90s and shows like The X-Files and things like that. And I guess until I watched those shows, I didn't realize, you know, maybe there's, you know, something other than religion where we could discuss the afterlife and, the you know, these possibilities of going somewhere after we die and ghosts and all these things and i was never really big on religion so i think you know i think the early first draw for me was just having some sort of possibility where you know there's something other than oblivion that didn't involve a religion it's an interesting take because i've heard uh versions of that from a lot of different people um but i've always come back to the fact that if we accept that there are spirits roaming the earth whether or not they're um, tethered to the earth or transitioning between uh, point A and point B, which would be the earth. I kind of think that kind of supports what a lot of religious teachings are about the afterlife, don't you? Isn't there kind of a connection there? I think if you have an open mind about the religion thing, um, because, I mean... I mean, it basically, religion, it basically, it basically no. proves that um, there's something other than the human, you know, the, the body. There's a, there's a soul. There's something uh, in addition to what we know in our physical form. And that's kind of what uh, religion talks about to a degree, right? Some, yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm not I mean, arguing. And, you know, and some religions are really good about talking about reincarnation and mm-hmm. um, other different um, sort of destinations for the soul um but even amongst you know if you take a a mainstream religion you know for us in america you know christianity you know catholicism can vary quite differently from say what methodists may think about uh the idea of ghosts um most of the people that i know who are hardcore catholics are staunchly against this idea of ghosts and the idea that there's you know any place that a spirit could go other than heaven and hell and the idea of an earthbound spirit and, uh, you know, any, especially us being plagued by ghosts, you know, those, those are obviously demons. Yeah. And there's no such thing as, as an, an ex-human ghost hanging around. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And I'm actually Catholic, although I'm not, I can't say that I'm necessarily practicing, but um, the Catholic religion does preach that. And uh, it's kind of at odds with, with uh, what you would think would be preached. But um, so, but I guess my point here is that if there's a soul and if it leaves the body and if it, 
you know, takes another form after uh, it leaves the body, then um, some way, somehow, that seems to be what this afterlife discussion is all about. So anyway, back to how you got involved. You um, were watching some TV in the 90s. You know, there are all these kind of programs that would touch on paranormal topics, but uh, they didn't last um, particularly long in some cases, and they never really seemed to get as much attention. Um, but you were one of the people that actually uh, were grabbed by it, and you started to do what with that? Well, it actually turned me on to a lot of the people. Did we lose you? I think we just lost Rich. I'm wondering if this whole religious discussion, religion discussion, uh, <laughs> maybe we shouldn't be talking about that. I mean, usually usually this happens when we're talking about UFOs. Um, we usually have a um, power failure or Internet failure or something that uh, we can blame on some type of government entity. But this one, I'm not sure who we blame. Um, well, we were talking about religion, so um, you know, maybe I didn't hear any lightning bolts, though, so or thunderclaps or whatever. So I guess that's a good sign. I'm hoping Slick is getting Rich back on the phone. By the way, Rich's website is beyond or paranormalincorporated.com. He's got a number of books to his credit, as I mentioned in the beginning of the discussion: Ghost Hunters Field Field Guide. Hunt, uh, ghost hunting for beginners, Delta, or excuse me, Devil in the Delta, Haunted Bridges and Ghosts of the Civil War. And I think we have Rich back. Are you with us? I'm back. Yay. I don't know what happened. Well, I tell you, you start talking about religion and anything can happen. You know, I didn't see any lightning bolts <laughs> descend, so I'm not sure what it was. But either way, good to have you back. So as you as you were saying, go ahead, pick up where you left off. Well, I was just going to say that, you know, one of the things about the show that I liked so much was that they would bring in a lot of the, sort of the big parapsychologists of the day, and sort of when I was listening to like people like you know Dr. William Roll and you know Kerry Gaynor and people like that, that really turned me on to you know seeking those guys out and like what they've written about you know uh, ghost hunting and their ideas into spirits and how ghosts worked and that really just opened a lot of doors for me. So what did you think about it all back then? Um, I mean, you know we. I used to watch the TV show In Search Of, and, uh, you know, ghosts were one of the topics, but Bigfoot and UFOs, there were a whole bunch of things that that show covered, and it was one of my favorite programs as a young kid uh, into the late 70s. Um, and it just made me really curious about all those topics, but I still didn't really understand what any of it was. Well, that for sure. <laughs> but, it, but, you know, it opened up that door of intrigue, too, where I'm sure that you became suddenly like, you know, maybe, you know, when I go camping one day, I might run into this Bigfoot or, yeah. you know, if I stay at this spooky house on the corner, maybe I do have a chance of running into that, you know, odd spirit kind of thing. Um, for me, it was really, you know, again, this combination of being really interested in sort of what these different scientists were saying about the idea of life after death, spirits hanging around, and also a combination of just me personally being sort of jaded and any alternative to me to oblivion was a good one. You yeah. know, even if it was, you know, a ghost is hanging out haunting this old house for a hundred years, that may sound pretty unappealing, but it's definitely better than the alternative. <laughs> yeah. Um, In my viewpoint, you yeah, know. Yeah. What do you think uh what do you think these things are? The things we call ghosts or spirits, what do you think they are? Well, I mean, I think that there's this is a pretty broad topic because, I mean, as you know, 
in ghost hunting, we sort of have all these different categories for ghosts. So I think it's nowadays when you say there's a ghost in the house, it can really be this giant range of different activity, everything from, you know, this energy left behind from actions in the past, you know, things we think of as being residual haunts. Um, it could be the spirit of a person that was there that's still around for whatever reasons. Um, it could be some, you know, a lot of people like lean towards this idea of elementals that are sort of spirits that never were human, but are still of the same sort of essence and hanging around on earth. I, I think it really comes down to the individual case and kind of what's happening there. And, but I, I think if you're talking about ghosts, this ex spirits, I do think that they are the spirits of ex of people that used to be people. Do you think uh, animals also have the ability to become ghosts? Well, that's an interesting conversation. Let me turn that around on you. Do you think that, that animals have ghosts? See, I'm the interviewer. You're the interviewee. <laughs> You're not supposed to ask me questions. That's why I, I get off not having to answer the tough ones. <laughs> you know, I actually think most of the, ghost, the, the animal haunting stuff kind of falls into the realm of the residual stuff because usually when people say that they see the cat or they, they feel the cat jump on the bed or that kind of thing, it usually tends to be something that was sort of in the routine of their pet. And so I'm going to lean on that. Okay. And we're going to get back to that angle a little bit later in our conversation as well when we talk about the Civil War uh, ghosts. Um, so back to uh, kind of um, becoming aware of this topic and becoming curious about it. I know when I was young, we used to uh, you know, do what we called ghost hunting, which was uh, nothing more than either entering an abandoned house or maybe even, uh, you know, bumming around a cemetery at night and spooking each other out. Uh, we never really saw much because we didn't, you know, we weren't doing things the way you should do them to see something. I'm assuming that you probably did a little bit of that, too, when you were younger. Well, absolutely. And I think, you know, you also kind of learn a lesson from those days. Um, you know, when you invest, start money, you investing money and time and effort into ghost hunting, you know, you're spending money on, you know, gas, food, traveling, staying in hotels and all this gear and, you know, everything else that we use to go ghost hunting. Well, you start getting a little more selective about the places that you go to. And, you know, even when you were a kid and say you're, you're sort of doing your own version of debunking the urban legends, you sort of become selective, you know, like, oh, well, you know, a lot of people have witnessed activity at this particular you know, urban legend, and one comes to mind for me in Missouri where people would swear this particular cemetery, they would see a pair of green eyes staring between these, these tombstones. And so people would come from far and wide to, to, you know, to see this. And, you know, when you have a lot of people say they see something, then you think, you know, well, hey, the odds are pretty good in this spot. You know, let's, let's do this. And then you go there, and whether, you know, it turns out to be something unexplainable or you totally debunk it, at least something happened, you know, and that's, that's a lesson I think that, you know, you take into even as an adult and being a more professional ghost hunter that you, you start to become a little bit picky about the stories that you pursue and, or at least invest your time and money in. I think it's important just to note that, um, you know, I think a lot of folks have a curiosity about cemeteries and, and visit them at night. And I don't think there's any way anything we say on this program is going to stop people from doing that. But I will say this. Please be respectful. Um, you know, 
nothing hurts me more than when I hear about people vandalizing headstones and, and having parties in cemeteries. I think that is very, very disrespectful. And I'm assuming you agree with me, um, Rich, that uh, we're discouraging any behavior like that. Oh, for sure. And I mean, it's a good rule in general, you know, whether you go to a public location or a private location to just be professional, Uh, you know, walking into any place carrying a six pack and saying, we're here to bust ghosts, you know, it's just isn't going to (laughs) fly anywhere. (laughs) You know, I I think it's a good rule just to be professional. Tonight, we're talking to Rich Newman on Beyond Reality Radio. He is an author and a paranormal investigator. His website is paranormalincorporated, all spelled out, dot com. Many books to his credit. We're talking about ghost hunting and ghosts. And we will be taking your phone calls later in the show at 844-687-7669. Rich, um, you know, you've, you've been doing this a while. You've had a lot of curiosity about this for a long time. Um, but paranormal television has changed over the years, obviously, from those days in the 90s or even the 70s when a show like Search Of was on. Um, it became very, very different and very, very popular uh, as we went into the 2000s. What do you think about how uh, that change took place and what it means to the paranormal community as a whole? Well, I definitely think it bolstered people's interest in the subject, which was a good thing and I don't want to say a bad thing, but, you know, definitely had some echoes of being bad, I suppose, because it's, on one hand, we had a lot of people, primarily businesses like restaurants, hotels, things like that, that maybe had a, a history of hauntings and things like that suddenly felt like, hey, you know, we can put this on our website and we can be more upfront about it and not have to hide this stuff. And, you know, I, and haunted tourism just sort of blew up because of these TV shows. Yeah. And that was, you know, in my opinion, was a great thing because of, you know, how many times, you know, in the past would you try to ghost hunt, you know, a place they'd be like, oh, we're not haunted. You'd be like, I'm sure you are. You're in like 20 bucks, 10 websites, and my friends stayed here. And, you know, no, 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 we're not haunted, you know, because they thought they were scared of that negative publicity. And I think the TV shows really did away with a lot of that. Um, On the other hand, the TV shows that sort of, whether it was the producers or the players, the people that really pushed into this realm of, you know, they're getting possessed every other week, every other episode, there's a demon running wild and all this kind of crazy stuff that's happening on the shows. I think has sort of also pushed us into this sensational sort of arena at times. And I think that aspect of it is kind of crappy. Yeah. um, There's responsible reality television. And I, you know, we have to take all of this with the understanding that uh, television is entertainment and regardless of how uh, much integrity, any investigating group has, Once the producers get it and the editors get it, um, you know, they cut it and they present it as entertainment and they do it to keep viewers and have ratings. So we have to make sure we understand that. However, having said that, um, some of these shows, as you mentioned, go into this uh, realm of of exorcisms and demons. And, uh, you know, like every every week there's a new, you know, demons coming out of the walls in a new place. Um, I'm not so sure that's responsible. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's, it's especially I think it does a disservice to the location. Um, this reminds me a lot of the stories that came out when people really started getting into 
the cases behind the Warrens. And, you know, you had a lot of people coming out and saying, yeah, the Warrens came in here, took our ghost story, and basically suddenly said we were all getting possessed and there were demons coming out of the walls and the news started rolling in and all these things started happening. And then, you know, lawsuits started happening and even people who wrote books for the Warrens, you know, came out against, you know, those cases and things. And that same sort of backlash, I think, comes out of all of this where, you know, you're starting to have people maligned on TV and they're, you know, they're stepping out saying, no, it's not like that. You know, like you wouldn't saw, you know, The Conjuring 2. Well, you know, the haunting at the Perone house wasn't quite like that, you know. Right. And um, I think as long as we let their voices stay active and we don't really try to hide behind this wall, sensationalism will be fine. Do you do you believe um, that the haunted tourism industry, which I I agree with your assessment of that. In fact, I know a lot of locations that would be in ruins today if it wasn't for that uh, movement and the fact that people took a renewed interest in a lot of these locations because of, of what would be considered their haunted history. But do you think that's sustainable? I do, just because I think that that norm has changed. I think that, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it was sort of starting to change where you still saw a lot of, especially museums, that were sort of reticent about wanting to discuss that haunted history and the folklore and things. But, you know, it's just in the last 10 years, it's really taken this hard right turn where a lot of museums and things have said, you know, folklore – uh, urban legends, the study of that sort of history really does go hand in hand with real history. And us, you know, just sort of putting it out there because it is a real part of, you know, the history of this place puts them in a position to be able to do things like, you know, have these Halloween fundraisers, um, have fun little ghost tours, do little explorations of, you know, if it's Victorian Arisay House, doing the sort of, of the Victorian era funeral kind of thing. And I've seen some really cool stuff in museums for this kind of thing. And um, yeah, I really think that's sustainable because I do believe that history and folklore have always been really good partners. And I just think that people are taking advantage of it more. You know, one good example of how an attitude changed at a location is the Otisaga Hotel, which is here in Cooperstown. It's a beautiful old, you know, early 20th century, massive hotel on a lake. And for years, they would avoid talking about any rumors of hauntings, and they didn't want anybody to speak of it. it the, the employees were told not to talk of it, and uh, anytime it was, they were asked of it, they denied it. And then things kind of got slow for them, and they allowed ghost hunters to come in and do an episode uh, there. And all of a sudden, their phones were ringing off the hook with people wanting to come stay at the Otisaga, and they embraced it. They started having ghost hunting weekends, and they started um, having Halloween things. And for uh, quite some time, and I think it may have slowed a little bit for them, it was uh, something they could do in the off season when Cooperstown wasn't flooded with baseball tourists, and it put a new uh, breath of fresh air into their business. And I think a lot of places experienced that. Sure, and why not? I mean... Uh, there's a local place here in Memphis. Uh, it's, it's a Victorian home that's a living museum um, called the Woodruff Fontaine House. It's very well known for the ghost of a girl named Molly Fontaine. And it was always just sort of something that was discussed, you know, sort of behind your hand, you know, when you went there. And 
I approached him one year and said, you know, you guys really could make a lot of money if on Halloween you just did this Molly Fontaine tour thing. And we just jumped into it one year, and, and I think right now they're on like the sixth year doing it. It's one of their biggest money makers of the year. And and it's really nothing sleazy about it or even sort of underhanded about it. You're just embracing a particular bit of history that's wrapped in folklore and presenting it to the public, nothing more. And, it, you know, and it does you well. You decided to start writing about this at, at some point. What made you decide to uh, change what you were doing as an investigator and become an author? Well, investigating was always just, you know, a hobby. I mean, I, I'm still not aware of anyone who's actually making money anywhere as Ghost Hunter. You know, that's always been one of the big things in the community, as you know, is, you know, ghost, you know, real ghost hunters don't charge people. They don't. They come in and they investigate. They do everything for free, that sort of thing. Ghost hunters don't make money, um, but it was always a hobby of mine. It was always an interest of mine. And when I got into writing, I was my first book was this really dry textbook called, you know, Cinematic Game Secrets, which is about applying filmmaking techniques to video game production. I'm a huge gamer. And you, I, when I got done with that, I was like, you know, I'm, I love to research and I love to do, I want to do something, though, that I really like. And so, you know, I had always been one of these guys, if anyone published a book that had like a list of haunted places in a state or, or in a particular area or something, I'd go buy it. You know, just because if I happened to be in that area, I wanted something I could grab and go, I'm going to go check out this haunted hotel or, you know, something. And so I ended up writing the Ghost Hunters Field Guide, which was all 50 states and all the places that I knew that people could go to without any special permissions. They could just go see, you know, these haunted restaurants, stay at these haunted hotels, go to these haunted museums. And, you know, a place, I just wanted a book where anyone who's interested in ghosts could grab it, go to any state, and they'd have places they could go and hang out that had haunted, you know, had ghosts. That's um, that's quite an undertaking, actually. Um, when you uh, when did you first start uh, investigating as as we know it today? When when did that start for you? Well, interestingly, I think it was probably about the early two thousands because I just got out of the army in two thousand and two, and when I went to live in Austin, Texas, I met up with a buddy, and he and I started Paranormal Incorporated in two thousand and two. And it sort of corresponded with really when the TV show phenomena stuff started kind of kicking off. And so, I mean, it was interesting to me because when we started exploring the haunted places around Austin, and at that time, you're really just sort of blogging about it and posting on MySpace and that sort of thing. Um, and then all of a sudden, the shows like Ghost Hunters, you know, started hitting on TV. And even some of the more places like, uh, unexplained mysteries and shows like, you know, that were sort of like sightings, but more updated. Um, I remember what was the one with Linda Blair and the lady from Poltergeist, uh, the In world's scariest places or something like that. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't, I, yeah, I don't know yeah, the exact these, title. Yeah. Yeah. All these, yeah, all these shows started to sort of blowing up at the same time. And, and I just kind of thought, you know, this is great motivation, you know, to get out and do this more. So we started blogging pretty heavily about it. And taking EVP stuff more seriously, I always had loved Sarah Eastep. She was a regular appearing uh, guest on Sightings. 
and she did these great essays on EVP and how to use EVP gear. But, you know, if you're an old-school ghost hunter, too, you were, do you remember when they used to have the debates about how digital recorders would never be able to capture EVPs because only the only the analog recorders could do it because they had the hiss and the built-in noise? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you remember all that? I do, sure. And so, you know, yeah, so she was one of those people that sort of, like, debunked that kind of early on. And, and it's funny because if you watch her in sightings, she used to actually take one of those giant reel-to-reel recorders. Yeah. Those big old, yeah, those big giant monsters. I got two of them sitting right them. in front of me. <laughs> oh, yeah. But she used to carry those, you know, down into, like, you know, haunted tombs and different, like, churches and things that she thought was haunted. And she would carry, you know, these giant microphones and reel-to-reel recorders and stuff. And so for her to step forward and say, you know, like, you know, no, a, you know, the recording device doesn't matter. <laughs> that's that's not the point of this whole thing. But anyway, I mean, when all that stuff, you know, all this technology was hitting, and, and, and I have to admit, you know, like, I think, Jay, you know, your, your co-host Jason and his buddies on Ghost Hunters did a lot for the community because they were out there every single week, Using the gear that you know, people kind of thought we were crazy for lugging around, and it, I, you know, hats off to them. All right, so we have to take a break now, but we're going to continue our conversation with Rich Newman. We're talking about ghost hunting, ghosts, spirits, and we're going to get into some Civil War hauntings as well. That's all ahead on the program. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm JV Johnson. Don't go away. We have a lot of program left. Looking for our guest's book? Go to Amazon.com slash shop slash Taps. Your calls in the next hour. At 844-687-7669. Tonight we're talking with Rich Newman, author, paranormal investigator. His website is paranormalincorporated.com. Um, Rich, you, we only have a couple minutes in this segment, but you mentioned something that um, piqued my curiosity in the last segment. You said you're a, you're a hardcore gamer. You're an avid gamer. What kind of games do you play? <laughs> well, I'm actually right now I've been sucking down the uh, Far Cry New Dawn that just came out. Uh, yesterday, mm-hmm. so I'm like about 12 hours into that already. <laughs> <laughs> that is hardcore. But, I, I find myself playing a little bit of Call of Duty now and then. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, the old shooters, and you're probably into the Fortnite and all that. You know what? My son has tried to get me to play Fortnite, and I've had a little bit of difficulty making that transition. Uh, it's It took me a long time to get the feel of the Call of Duty games, and I'm I'm at a point where I feel I'm at least adequate, and I, I try to switch to something like uh, Destiny or uh, Fortnite, and it's just like it's a learning process starting all over again, and I'm not into that. Well, man, if you jump into Destiny, <laughs> you can add me because I'm I'm all over that game. Oh, are you? Oh, nice. Okay. Well, we'll we'll hook up after the show. We'll we'll connect with usernames so we know we can look <laughs> for right. each other. Um, I, I, we, again, just a couple minutes in this segment. Um, you've talked about equipment. Tell me what equipment you think is the um, most valuable asset to an investigator. I pretty much go with just the basics. I, I really like a really good audio recorder that has a mic sensitivity that can get down into low, the lower decibel realm. And I like a really good EMF detector. I think if you've got those two things that you're you're pretty much covered in most scenarios because I'm sure – your experiences probably in haunted places have been similar to mine because 90% of all of the evidence we ever get, anything we ever capture, is usually audio. And having a really good audio recorder tends to be the best piece of gear that you can have on you, I think. Um, EMF detectors are also pretty important, but I think that they can also steer a lot of young people 
in the wrong direction. I mean, young to ghost hunting. Um, and that, you know, it can lead you to bad wiring and devices that have un- crazy EMF around it and that sort of thing. Um, but really that's, you know, those are the two that I lean on the most. I, I try to use the camera a lot to get, you know, visuals, but pointing a camera in the right place at the right time is quite the challenge. What about some of the apps that um, people have been downloading? Um, you know, there are some that have more integrity than others, but any of those, hey, first of all, what do you think of a smartphone as a tool to begin with? And secondly, what do you think of some of these apps? Well, I think if you, I think if you buy one of the nice external microphones for your smartphone, you can do it. You can use your smartphone for, for sure, audio recording. The apps, I think, are mostly all entertainment purpose type stuff. I, I haven't personally ran into any app that I would consider any kind of serious piece of gear, you know, for capturing anything. Um, night vision and thermal vision on a phone is pretty crappy or impossible. I, I'm not aware of any great apps for that or. Well, I know there's some attachments. Or I, I know there's some attachments you can now get. I think FLIR makes some that uh, actually turn your phone into a pretty decent uh, infrared or a, a night vision or an infrared type uh, device. Okay, now see, I'd be all over that because FLIR is is quite good. So uh, yeah, I would be all over that. Um, I'm sure. What is that? Probably about a five hundred dollar attachment. Yeah, no, I think they run a, um, around four hundred bucks, if I remember correctly. In fact, uh, Jason and I were at the Consumer Electronics Show last uh, January, and uh, we were there specifically to help promote those devices. So uh, they were pretty cool for sure. Uh, we're talking about ghost hunting and ghosts, and specifically, we're going to get into some Civil War related hauntings. If you want to join the discussion, give us a call at eight four four six eight seven. 7669. Tomorrow night's program will be bringing in Carissa Hartley. Carissa is a psychic medium. We're going to be talking about her work and uh, we might be taking your phone. Well, I know we'll be taking your phone calls. I'm not sure if we're doing readings or not. I need Slick to let me know what the deal is with that. Friday, of course, is a best of program here on Beyond Reality Radio. Maybe not for much longer. We're working on that too. Um, Monday, Steve Ubaney is our guest. Tuesday, RL. Mysterious initials of RL. He's an author, and we'll be talking about his book, The Lead Skalnin Code, Dex. <laughs> I, get, I get hung up on Lead Skalnin. Lead Skalnin. I've read that word a hundred times, thousand times, and uh, I know it's the last name of the gentleman who was responsible for building Coral Castle. And that, of course, is what this book is about. So we'll be talking with him on Tuesday night. Um, once again, a couple things coming up on my calendar. I'd love to have you put on your calendar. And if you're in the areas of uh, these events, join me. Um, March 15th, I'm trying to get this card here so I can read it. March 15th through the 17th, I'll be at Horror Hound uh, in Cincinnati. Um, that's a 15th through the 17th. That's a very large um, horror fan convention, but I'll be there for that. The 29th through the 31st of March, I'll be at New Jersey Horror Con at Atlantic City. Be rolling the, the dice there. And um, May 3rd through the 5th, I'm scheduled to be at Seattle Crypticon. So if you're in any of those areas, love to love to see you. Um, and then uh, if you get a chance, stop by my Facebook page, uh, JV Johnson. And also check out the YouTube page, JV Johnson on YouTube. Subscribe to that page if you get a chance. And Rich, you wrote a book, uh, Ghosts of the Civil War. Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, I know a lot of people in the paranormal community start their paranormal stories by saying, I was 
at Gettysburg, and I had this experience, and it made me curious. That is not uncommon at all. Gettysburg is a hot spot of paranormal activity, as are many of the Civil War locations. So um, tell me about your book. Where did your stories come from? Is there a certain geography, um, or did you just seek out the most haunted uh, places related to the Civil War and uh, talk about them? Well, I definitely cover every area of the Civil War as far as geography goes, but I think the interest came from me living here in Memphis and being really close to Shiloh and Vicksburg and surrounded by a lot of just little, smaller places like Fort Pillow and these, you know, sort of smaller forts and little skirmish areas. And I had so much of that around me that I I started going there and doing a lot. And like you just mentioned, ghost hunters already sort of made these places really popular just because, you know, they're public parts. You can, you can go there during the day. You can carry an audio recorder and a camera. You can walk around and, you know, listen for anything like cannons going off. It's one of the most common experiences at these battlefields. So you have so many different people going there for their first investigations anyway. So I thought, you know, this is a great opportunity to sort of take something I have handy here and an interest because it's also involved with history and folklore, and turn it into a book. And, man, it was a blast writing it. Were you able to visit all the sites? I mean, that's that's quite an undertaking. All the sites, no. What I figured out pretty quick in this, this writing these ghost books was that getting to know a lot of the local ghost hunting groups in different areas is really was an asset. And... I tried to go to as many places as I can. I, I went to, I think, 40-something different battlefields, uh, a couple hundred different little major and minor forts and skirmish areas, cemeteries, you name it. And any place that I couldn't go to, I would just reach out to the local ghost hunting groups and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm learning about this area. What was your experiences there? Can you back up any of these claims of activity and that sort of thing? And this is one of the things I've found about the ghost hunting culture is that when we figure out somebody else is really interested in it, we share info and trade ghost hunting places and stories. And that's been one of the coolest things about writing about this ghost stuff. What's unique about the Civil War? Um, why is it that so many paranormal um, hotspots are connected to it? Why is it so, that so many uh, Civil War locations have so much paranormal activity? Is there something unique here? Or what's the story? I think it's a combination of, I mean, first of all, we're talking about between 620,000 and most current estimates actually even run up as high as 850,000. People died during this one war. And just to put this in perspective, the next highest casualties was World War II with 405,000. I mean, the Civil War is head and shoulders even above that by over 200,000 know, dead. And we're talking about dead. And you're, of course, I just, want to, I just want to clarify, we're talking about American casualties. American, because American the, dead. Yeah, World War Two casualties. Had, you know, includes also those wounded and things like that. We yeah. had over six hundred and twenty thousand people killed in the Civil War. And we're talking soldiers right. were killed. Not even we're not even including the civilian casualties and things that you know were secondary to the war, such as starvation, lack of medicine, all of these types of things. 
You know, over 620,000 soldiers died during the Civil War. This is a crazy number. I mean, you look at, like, the Vietnam War, we lost 58,000 and change troops. Then when you get into the individual battles of the Civil War, Gettysburg, we lost 51,000 casualties. Oh, yeah, so know. we had as many casualties in Gettysburg as almost the entire Viet- Vietnam War. In three days, yeah. Um, in three days, in one spot, in one battle in that war. Yeah, and I, I think you... I was going to say... I think, you, I think you take that amount of sheer dead, but also the fact that this was a... You know, where you know, North is fighting the South Americans are fighting Americans. Families were divided. The emotions were running so high. And you know, like I do, when when you have ghost stories, a lot of times they talk about the emotions and what they can do is, you know, people lingering because of these emotions. I think a combination of, of emotions running hot and this sheer amount of death is why the Civil War is such a ghost hunter hotspot. Yeah, a lot of people don't uh, take into account that both sides of each of those battles were Americans, and that's why uh, you know those casualties are so outrageous. Um, the other thing we have to point out is that in a, in a battle like Gettysburg, and this was true with almost all of the Civil War battles, is that after the armies left, the dead essentially laid strewn across those fields for days. That's true, and and often the side of the dead that lay there was who won the battle because both sides were sort of notorious about sort of expeditiously taking care of their own dead and just sort of leaving the other side laying there in the field. And oftentimes it would take the locals to come in after, you know, in the Mm -hmm. aftermath of a battle to come in and sort of sweep up the dead Mm -hmm. and then sort of depending on their dispositions, because, you know, Everything from a local mob who maybe hated the other side who would just throw them into a mass grave. Or you had people, you know, who genuinely, you know, cared about all the soldiers who were there. And they would try to make efforts to bury them properly. But, you know, we have this whole range of the, of the way the dead was treated in this war. And I know, like my local battlefield, Shiloh, which was the sixth highest in casualties in the Civil War, there's a lot of mass graves in the area for Confederates and not so much for the Union soldiers because, of course, they won the day there. The, um, you know, these casualties would stay on the field. Um, in fact, many of the photographs that you see uh, from the Civil War and you see photographs of uh, dead soldiers, um, I know a lot of the ones from Gettysburg pretty uh, specifically because I studied that battle. Um, but, you know, that photographer, it took him days to get to the field, and when he got there, those bodies were still there, and that's why they're so disfigured in many cases. But when you talk about that amount of tragedy and that amount of motion and that amount of blood that is soaked into the ground, I'm assuming that um, that is the perfect storm, if you will, for paranormal activity. Absolutely. And I mean, and we're talking also, if you are the type of person that buys into the environmental factors, a lot of these state parks, too, I mean, when you get into the makeup of the bedrock and whatnot, the environmental, you know, there's usually strong. You notice that a lot of these battlefields have some sort of major waterway running through them. Um, I know in Shiloh, the Tennessee River runs right through the middle. We had the Battle of Stones River just outside Nashville. You know, then you have the Stones River that's running right through there. And, you know, if you get into sort of that environmental factors, too, you've got that going on for, yeah, it it does seem 
that, you know, the, these big battlefields are sort of the perfect storm for a ghost to hang around. As you were writing about these stories in these places, which ones kind of made the top of the list? Man, I, you know, I love the ones that just sort of persist. Like, you know, if I hear a story and you're, it's this thing from the, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, but it's sort of faded away into that secondary realm of folklore. You know, I like it, but I, I'm not as interested in it. But you take something like Green Eyes in Chickamauga. So for a lot of people, they a lot of people know about Gettysburg because of the 51,000 casualties and the three days. And, and honestly, it was the biggest turning point of the war, pretty much sealing it for the North. But the second highest casualties in the war was at Chickamauga in Georgia. And literally since the days after that battle to the present day, stories of an entity called Green Eyes has been spoken about Chickamauga. And, I mean, you can get on and do a quick Google search of Green Eyes, Chickamauga, and pull up stories as current as, like, last week about Green Eyes. People who still run into wow. this, this spirit. This, you know, and I'm not even sure we call it a spirit at this point because I know a lot of crypto people have started jumping on the Green Eyes thing and, and claiming it's more of this sort of revenant, otherworldly being thing that's you know, was feeding off the dead on the battlefield. But that those kind of stories that sort of persist, you know, on over the over the century plus since the Civil War, those are the ones that really really get to me. When you um, talk to other people who've had experiences on uh, Civil War sites, do they um, share those experiences? And is there a common thread from what people are seeing? I mean, what's the most common type of apparition or experience that folks uh, experience? Well, I definitely think on the battlefields, the most common type of activity is people hear the sounds of battle. Um, I think probably 99 out of 100 people who have something happen on a battlefield, they hear the sounds of cannons, people, you know, the cries of battle, um, sometimes screams of pain, that sort of thing. It's usually audible, audible stuff. And But when you get into, and this is where I really had a lot of fun with the book, when you get off the battlefields and you start getting into some of the historic homes that are associated with the Civil War, that's when you really start getting into these interesting stories about apparitions, you know, who hung around since the 1860s and have been seen for generations in X home. And really when you start getting in, and it's also pretty interesting how many of these places have turned into sort of B&Bs and inns and things. So I totally, and I think this is another reason why Gettysburg has become popular, because you can stay, you know, at the Cashtown Inn, and you can stay at places like uh, Tilly Pierce House Inn and stuff like that. And I think if you can get into some of these homes that are associated with the Civil War, that's your best shot of seeing an apparition and having something visual happen. If most of the experiences are auditory, if they're sounds, um, do we have a, a good record or a good uh, compilation of EVP or other type of audio recordings that, that uh, come from those sounds? I think there's a lot of people, uh, ghost hunters, who regularly go to these sites that have done a pretty good job of getting what sounds like cannon fire in the distance and things like that. I actually had that happen 
while I was writing the book, my partner and I, we went to Fort Pillow here in Tennessee, and we were up, Just I was getting some stock photos for the book, and we heard what sounded like cannons going off. And I said, "Was there is there a reenactment happening right now? And he said, I don't think so. And then when we went back down to the little park ranger office where they had the little mini museum, I brought it up with, with that fellow, and he was like, no, there's no reenactments, nothing going on. And he kind of gave us a sideways look, you know, and you know the sideways look. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think that's the most common thing, and I would be shocked if there weren't a lot of recordings of that particular type of activity for sure. When we uh, also look at these buildings that have are located on or near Civil War battlefields, most structures of any substance were used as hospitals during and after those battles. And those places, too, have a lot of reports of paranormal activity. And clearly there was a lot of suffering and tragedy in those buildings. Any of those stories make your book? Oh, tons of them. And I mean, and this is really one of the overlooked aspects of the Civil War. Everyone really wants to look at the battlefields, but the the shoddy medical care that was happening during the Civil War accounted for a third to two-thirds of the deaths. It wasn't, most of them did not die immediately on the battlefield. They either languished and died in these hospitals, and you also have the prisons where a lot of people died. And those were really, both of those are hot spots for a lot of activity. Um, I went to a pretty famous place in Mississippi close to us called um, the Decent House, and that's a prime example. They actually wrote a, I made a movie just recently called uh, The Free State of Jones, uh, that sort of involves this house because Amos Deason was a was a big local rich man who had you know land and when the Civil War came into Mississippi they took his house and turned it into a field hospital and there's these diary entries you can go and read from Amos Deason where he talks about the stacks of just amputated limbs that were thrown out the window. Yeah, they would be. They, they would. would sorry to cut you. Yeah, sorry to cut you off, Rich. We, I, I didn't realize how close we were to break, but those piles would just be stacks and heap. Our phone number is eight four four six eight seven seven six six nine. If you want to get in on our discussion about ghosts and ghost hunting with uh, Rich Newman, author of many books on the topic, including Ghosts of the Civil War, Ghost Hunters Field Guide, and Ghost Hunting for Beginners. A lot of great stuff there, Rich. Before we went to the break, we were talking about the field hospitals and the fact that these hospitals, and you were actually referencing some specific journal entries of uh, a homeowner whose house was uh, commandeered as a field hospital, and the limbs would just be amputated and thrown out a window to the point where they were stacked several stories high at times, right? Yes, and I mean, the amount of pain and suffering that would happen in this one tiny domicile, I mean, is total recipe for a haunting. And so, so many times when you go in these places that were field hospitals, prisons, I think when you look at the amount of death combined with the amount of suffering and the emotional discharge that would come out of these people suffering, yeah, I mean, these are these are why the Civil War is so associated with ghosts and hauntings. One thing that folks often forget is that the Civil War uh, happened in a time when weaponry was able to inflict incredible carnage, but yet um, penicillin wasn't available. So if, if a foreign object entered your body, you were going to get an infection and almost always die. And the only option to uh, help you at that point was if it was in a limb is to remove the limb. And 
And uh, that's why it was the post-battle deaths that were really the toll on uh, both armies. Uh, it was that the fact that medical uh, technology and science hadn't gotten to the point where it could save people. That's true. And, I mean, you were lucky if you got a swallowed whiskey, you know, before they took the saw to your arm. Yeah, right. So, I mean. Yeah, there was no yeah. anesthesia either. There was just, man, I tell you, I, it's just an unbelievably barbaric. It did save some lives but it was barbaric nonetheless. So, um, you know, these battlefields are very, very active. Um, I mentioned early in the program, I think I asked you the question, can animals have ghosts? Can, they, can an animal become a ghost? So many reports that I've heard around Civil War battlefields are uh, reports of horses. Uh, are these horses um, ghosts? Are they spirits? What are, what are those people experiencing? Well, I think a lot of times when we have these stories that involve uh, hearing the sounds of wagons and horses and cannon fire. I mean, obviously we know wagons and cannon fire or cannons are not ghosts. Um, these are sounds that happened in a moment of time that for whatever reason people are hearing being replayed. So, you know, to use the parlance, the term of, you know, residual haunting, I think that's exactly what these are. I think they're just moments in time that have been captured in the environment, and that's what we're hearing. Um, the actual getting into your question about animals, though, I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence about this. I'm an animal lover, and I would like to think, you know, that all dogs go to heaven, so to speak, and that animals have spirits, but I just, I just don't know. I mean, I would like to think that all living things have some sort of life energy that passes on to whatever, you know, after death. So to me, I guess, in a sense, you know, trees, plants, animals, people, all of us may have sort of a, a stake in the afterlife. After the Civil War, because of the number of deaths, and it, it basically touched every American family, um, north and south, obviously, uh, there was a great spiritualist movement. People uh, didn't have photographs at that time of loved ones they lost. And um, in many cases, the bodies were never returned to the families. Uh, so there was this yearning of people trying to reconnect with those loved ones. In some cases, they didn't know whether those loved ones were dead or alive. But it really gave birth to a bit of a spiritualist movement where people were looking for ways to contact the dead. What are your thoughts on that post-Civil War movement? Man, that's you know that might be one of my favorite subjects of all time. I love talking about the Victorian era and all of the things that came out of the Civil War with regards to spirituality and spiritualism. Um, I mean, of course, you have the infamous rise of the Ouija board, and whatever your take is or thoughts on that, I mean, it was a huge tool of the time that became extremely popular. Um, but also... The idea of seances and uh, mediums and people who would come and do uh, combinations thereof, of any of those. And I think more importantly, it just became a time when people were more openly talking about these things and, and turning to the afterlife and talking about maybe we could speak you know, to the loved ones who have passed away and all these things. And man, I love all this, all that stuff. And I would love someday to go to a real seance. It's uh, it is fascinating. Let's um, jump to a listener call here. This is Randy in Indiana. Randy, welcome to the program. 
Hi, thank you. I just wanted to ask you guys if uh, you were familiar with uh, the old slave house in southern Illinois that existed during the Civil War. Slave house? In, slave, yeah. Well, you, are you talking about the one, uh, the Eldred house? Uh, it's, it's just, that's just what it's called, the old slave house. and uh, It's in Gallatin County, Illinois. Uh, a Democrat politician had it. Uh, he he uh, bred slaves there, and he had two holes in the front of his house there, and he had a torture chamber up on a on the third Ooh. story, and uh, he he would catch uh, freed slaves and bring them in, take the papers from them, and uh, take them up in a torture chamber. So there's a there's a story uh, on a pamphlet I picked up about thirty years ago that says there's a lot of wailing and whimpering going on at the neighbors often here. Oh wow. Yes, I actually I've been to that house um, when I was living in Missouri. I, I made a trip over there and got to got to hang out there and visit there. That's the house where yeah, the owner he actually would torture the slaves. He would recapture up in his attic. And interestingly, there was a TV channel, a local TV channel in Southern Illinois, and they used to do a challenge every year on Halloween to see if somebody could actually stay all night in the house in the attic. And you would go up there, and they had the chains were all still on the wall, and they'd no one ever made it through this this attic for a whole evening. Wow! And they they do it. They call it the old slave house, and it is it's actually owned by the state, and they've been toying with reopening it as a museum, I believe. And yeah, that's an interesting that's an interesting location. That was a that was a that was a mean place. He was tried and acquitted for. Uh... Taking those slaves and those uh, freed slaves and reselling them back into slavery. Wow! <laughs> you wouldn't really think there, there would be that many out there. Uh, I have a, I have that pamphlet. I can read it aloud, and so help me. Uh, while I'm reading it, there's this dark shadow that comes in through my wall and passes in front of me. I've done it. I don't know how many countless numbers of times. Wow. Well, that, that's a that's a really interesting location, and uh, I wasn't familiar with that. Did where did you say? What town is it in, Randy? It's, a, it's in Gallatin County, Illinois. Gallatin County uh, on on Route 13 and Route One. It when Barack Obama was senator in Illinois, it got closed to the public, but it was a, a huge a tourist attraction for people came here from uh, wow. countries all over the world to visit that place. Wow. Well, thanks for bringing that up to us, Randy. We appreciate the phone call. Um, is you, you have been there, though, Rich. You visited that. Yeah, and you can actually, if you Google it, it's actually, it's, it's formally called the Crenshaw House. I think that, I can't remember the first name of the fellow that lived there, but his last name was Crenshaw. And if you look up Crenshaw House, you can actually find it online. But yeah, he was a pretty notorious fellow uh, for rounding up and torturing slaves, or at least holding them captive until they could be put back into slavery, that kind of thing. But yeah, that that house, the stories about that house, was urban legend for oh my gosh, decades. And like I said, they used to have a TV program every Halloween, and they would dare people to stay all night there. They'd hear chains rattle, and they'd come running out of the place. Yeah, it's really cool. You um, also wrote a book that is ghost hunting for beginners, right? I think that's the title. Um, let's talk about that for the few minutes we have left. What types of things do you cover in that book for people who are looking to get getting uh, just get started in paranormal investigating? Everything from you know gear and the, the gear that I actually suggest you know starting with and the stuff that may be superfluous. 
um, things like different types of ghosts. And, you know, when I actually wrote the book, um, I had just started working with Fuji TV and I've still worked with them right now. We shoot a show called Nandacore mystery where we go to haunted places all over America. And the Japanese viewpoints on ghosts really influenced me a lot. And I put a lot of sort of that thought into the book as well, which is, like one of the big concepts that really jumps out to me is they have this concept of ghosts haunting people instead of places. And whereas in most American ghost stories, you know, you have a house, it's haunted, and it's sort of trapped in that house, and whoever comes in sort of experiences it. The Japanese have so many stories about a ghost haunting a person and even going so far as to sort of ride on their back like a like this mysterious laborious ghost that hangs on them on their every movement. And that really started me thinking about all the different types of ghosts around the world and how we could sort of figure out a system for, I don't know, started getting evidence towards all these ghosts. And if you were going to explore ghosts, and I, I try to put as much of this in the book as possible. And what about... Um the types of equipment, uh, you, you know, you mentioned earlier that audio recorders are the most important. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, I've always said eyes and ears are even more important than that. Well, how do you, how do you take uh, a stance on that? Well, for sure. I mean, and, and it's amazing how many people that you say, you know, you want to go ghost hunting with and the boredom sets in and you notice that, you know, they're, they start talking and they start getting distracted and for sure, I mean, I can't say even doing ghost hunting classes, how many times you've been in doing a ghost hunting class and a disembodied voice starts speaking in the room or something and suddenly everybody stops talking and you're like, yeah, you know, how much of this were you talking over the top of? But for sure, anything that has to do with audio recording, taking photographs, video, anything, I think where you get into overkill is when you have somebody who hasn't really got into ghost hunting. And they want to drop, you know, a couple grand right off the bat on a thermal imaging camera, which I, I mean, I love them, but I'm, I'm not so sure that should be your first purchase, you know, out of the gate. Um, because, again, so many people want to thrill seek, and then when they actually get into ghost hunting, they figure out pretty quick, like, how many hours sitting in the dark and in the quiet, yeah. <laughs> it can get kind of boring. <laughs> yeah, that's what people, you know, when people watch the shows and and even though and often on the shows we don't get much more than a noise or, or some subtle uh, activity. Um, but even that's more exciting than just sitting in the dark with nothing happening for three hours. And they don't see that part of the investigation because that's all edited out. That does not make good TV. That's true. And how many times, and I mean, and a lot of times on these TV shows too, uh, how many times do they spend multiple days there? Right. So, I mean, not even just a day. They may have spent three, four nights there you know, all night trying to get something to happen. And, you know, and that's when the producers start pushing for those orb photos and those, you know, garbled background noises for, you know, quote, unquote, EVPs and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, so a lot of people bail out of ghost hunting pretty quick, you know, if things don't start happening, especially if they're approaching it seriously and not turning a ghost hunt into a reason to haul around a six-pack and some friends. Yeah. So are you working on anything else, another book in the works? I am. I'm working on a book right now called Disembodied. It's about a haunting in southeast Missouri that 
spans over about a hundred years. And, uh, I'm about two thirds my way into that. So hopefully it'll be coming out in, from Llewellyn, uh, sometime next year. And, uh, what about investigating any locations that you've got on your list that you're headed out to anytime soon? Well, I'm still shooting with Fuji TV, so we're going to be doing an episode up at the Talbot Tavern in Kentucky here in a couple weeks. Um, and I'm still working with them pretty regularly, so we've been doing investigations and shooting for that show. Um, other than that, not a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, you do have a group. Uh, your website is Paranormal Incorporated. Uh, I'm assuming that's an active group that is actually doing investigations as well. Yeah, at least me and one member. My brother's actually in the Army in Germany, so he had to bail out for a moment. But, uh, yep, we're still actively, you know, going to places and checking out uh, places in the area and writing about them on our website, doing our best to capture evidence and that sort of thing. And what's the one piece of advice you would give to people who are just now thinking about starting uh, to do some paranormal investigating? I would go back to something you said at the very beginning of this conversation, which was just be respectful and professional and, you know, always respect the location and the people there and don't try to push your beliefs or do anything unprofessional that would not only turn them off against any other ghost hunters in the future coming there, but kind of make us all look bad. You've got several books already out. You're working another one that will be coming out soon. Where can people get a hold of the books? Amazon, Barnes & Noble, they can go to Llewellyn Publishing's website. Um, they keep that pretty much up to date. And um, and I usually post about it on, on my website and on Facebook, too. Great. Uh, Rich, thank you so much for spending the time with us tonight and uh, sharing what were some great stories and great insight. It's been a pleasure. Anytime, man. Thanks. Ever wish your wishes could come true? Well, now they can with the Wish It HD. Crabco's Wish It HD. I was in the ER and had my eye on this hot nurse in scrubs. Glad I had my Wish It HD along for the ride. Hey there, big boy. Time for a sponge bath. Now I'm getting scrubbed. Thank you, Wish It HD. The Wish It HD uses the latest in new technology to harness the power of the ethereal planes and grant your wish, not just in normal D, but in the latest high-quality HD. I needed money and fast, so I just used my Wish It HD. Here's your 337 Chase. Thanks for reading Burger Town. Thank you, Wish It HD. Crabco's Wish It HD. The Crabco Wish It HD. Guaranteed to grant your wish in stunning HD. Another amazing product by Crabco. The Crabco Wish It HD is not guaranteed to grant any wish. Hey, Jay, you hungry? I just heated up a couple potatoes. Here, let me grab them out of the microwave. No, JV, don't. Ah, my thumb. Ah, my thumb. Don't let this happen to you. Crapco's Thumbrella is the perfect protection for the perfect unfinger. The Crapco Thumbrella is made up of high-quality heat-resistant asbestos and perfectly suited to handle the most dangerous jobs. Just don't breathe near it. The Crapco Thumbrella. Use the Thumbrella for ultimate thumb protection while using matches, pouring coffee, sunbathing near the pool, changing spark plugs, handling kill-fired ceramics, and so much more. And how about those romantic candlelit dinners? Come over here, baby. Watch the candle. Don't worry, I brought protection. Thanks, Thumbrella. (laughs) 
The Crapco Thumbrella usually sells for $29.95, but call now and we'll triple your order. One for each thumb. And with every order today, Crapco will donate 30 cents to safety. Save a forgotten thumb international. The Crapco Thumbrella is the only safety-approved thumb protection device on the market. And isn't your thumb worth it? The Crapco Thumbrella should not be considered a thumb protection device and is illegal in some states. In fact, most states. In fact, all states. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for tonight. Thanks for being here. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.